Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's a joy to be with you once again to share God's Word. This is a time in our service where we look at God's Word together. We see what it says, what it means, and how it applies to us, and we aim to be doers of the Word and to apply what we've heard immediately in obedience to our good Master. But we need God's help in order to do that. Let's pray one more time before we start. Oh Lord, help us. We pray this time is fruitful. We pray this time will give you glory. We pray that you were with us and that you would be with us in the preaching and hearing and heeding of your word. Use your word, O oh Lord, to convict us, correct us, and change us so that we will look more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. So as a child growing up, there was one question that I always dreaded, and that question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? I could not stand that question. In fact, one time I was asked that question by a substitute teacher in seventh grade. Apparently, she didn't really know what she was doing, so she just decided to do what some subs do. They just start talking to the kids asking them questions, getting in their business. So she asked everybody, what do you want to be when you grow up? Hands go up. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a basketball player or whatever else. And then she got to me, and my response was, I don't know. And she got mad at me. This healthy adult got upset with me like she was offended by the fact that I really didn't have a good answer for that question. I didn't know at the time. Right? But this question, especially our kids and teens, you probably get that all the time. You're know, like, what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to have everything figured out when I'm in seventh grade, for example. Right? But have no fear because some of the big people around you have a hard time answering that question too sometimes. What do we want to be when we grow up? But really, that question is not about falling into some sort of job or career. It's about your aim and your purpose. Because if you are going to be a doctor or a lawyer, you're not just going to fall into that. You have to pursue that, right? So to ask it differently, what will you pursue with your life? We can ask ourselves this personally, or we can even ask ourselves this as a church, Chevrolet Baptist Church. What do we want to be when we grow up? What do we want to pursue with our lives? What should we be pursuing? In Paul's second letter to Timothy, he's declaring to Timothy what he should be pursuing. And that's what we should be pursuing as God's people as well. More than any goal or any aim or any pursuit that we have in this life, we should be pursuing after righteousness. Please meet me if you haven't in the letter of 2 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, finishing up that chapter. If you're using the Bibles around us, that's on page 996. This is Paul's final letter written to his son in the faith, Timothy. He wants Timothy to rightly guard and give 
the gospel to others, to teach people to do the same, and to be an approved worker, as we learned last week. This week, we're picking up from where our brother Jonathan Lehman helpfully led us through in verses 14 through 19, where Paul is instructing Timothy about what it means to be an approved worker for God, to rightly handle God's word, to avoid irreverent babble, to trust in God's sovereignty, to rightly handle and heed his word. And Paul wants Timothy to be confident as he was doing this, even in the face of those who were not doing that anymore, in the face of those who swayed away from the face, because God's firm foundation stands. As it says in verse 19 of chapter 2, the Lord knows who are his, and his people should depart from iniquity. But here in verses, starting in verse 20, all the way through chapter 3, verse 9, Paul continues to instruct Timothy in what this means to be an approved worker, how to be useful for the master. And it involves both what Timothy should pursue and also what Timothy should avoid. Brothers and sisters, that's true of us as well. We should pursue righteousness, and we should avoid unrighteous leaders. Follow along with me as I read the text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20. This is God's word. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So if you're taking notes, the main idea for our time together in God's word is the following. For the sake of the truth, God's people should pursue righteous living and avoid unrighteous leaders. For the sake of the truth, God's people should pursue righteous living and avoid unrighteous leaders. Now, there's two parts to that. For today's sermon, we're going to focus on the first part, pursuing righteous living. That's verses 20 through 26. Next week, Lord willing, we'll focus on chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and the latter part, avoiding unrighteous leaders. So as we focus on verses 20 through 26, we'll divide our time in three ways. We'll focus on Paul's charge to Timothy, first of all, as we just walk through the passage. Secondly, we'll focus on the righteous life of Christ and see how he exemplifies this charge. And lastly, we'll focus on our pursuit of righteousness and see how this rightly applies to us. 
So first of all, let's focus on the passage itself, Paul's charge to Timothy here. This passage is full of various contrasts throughout. And if you scan over the passage right now with me, you'll see those contrasts. You see gold and silver vessels, and then you see vessels of wood and clay. You see the main exhortation of the passage coming from verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. You see that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind. We'll see even in the last couple of verses that God may grant them repentance, that they may flee from the snare of the devil. But this passage starts in verse 20 with this metaphor of this great house and with honorable and dishonorable vessels. This house is a great house or a large house, possibly in your translation. So picture a large house, a mansion, spacious, lots of rooms. If you look at houses like that, you might think someone there is pretty important or pretty wealthy, right? And now this use of the word house might have quickly reminded even Timothy of the temple, God's house. Or we, just re- we just heard about in our scripture reading from 1 Chronicles 22, the temple that Solomon was to build for the Lord. And in that passage, David, the king, provided for it because the house of the Lord was to be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all the land, because God is that magnificent, and that's what he deserves. But this house reference here would have also reminded Timothy of the church. Let's think of 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, starting in verse 14, after Paul gives Timothy these qualifications for elders, who's supposed to be the shepherds of God's house, he says this, I hope to come to you soon, But I am writing these things so that to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So this church, this household of faith is built on the firm foundation of God's word, as we heard in verse 19 last week. And Jesus is building his church. He will build his church. And he's using vessels in order to do so. Now let's talk about vessels. Vessels in Paul's day were referring to these jars or these containers that were either expensive and costly, so made out of silver or gold, or inexpensive, cheap, common, wood, clay. Some were special, and some were regular. They were for everyday use. Now, one quick question that that distinction of these gold and silver versus these wood and clay vessels, that might bring up the question, well, what kind of vessel am I? Am I silver? Am I gold? Am I wood? Am I clay? Are some of us just more special than others? Are pastors and ministry leaders, those are the gold and silver vessels and everybody else which is wood and clay? That's not what Paul's wanting to mean with this metaphor here. I don't think he means that at all. This is less about the material and more about the master of the house and how to properly serve the master and what you should be serving the master with. 
should be serving the master with honorable vessels. So, for example, just recently at the Critics' Choice Awards, you had many A-list celebrities gathered up, dolled up, paying who knows how much for their outfits that they would name on the red carpet, sitting in this room with all these important people, um, talking to each other, talking about their accomplishments and thanking God or whoever else they want to thank for their victories. It's supposed to be an elegant night. But there was a stir because at one point, these very important people who were all dressed up were served pizza in a bag with a label on it. Now, there's nothing wrong with pizza. We're having pizza today at our members' meeting. Some of you kids came ready for that. My son Alan was like, let's sit on the edge so we can get there first. Pizza's good, right? But it wasn't fitting for the occasion. They were dressed up. They were fancy. They were supposed to be important. And yet they were served pizza in a bag. They felt disrespected. They felt that was dishonorable, right? That's kind of the picture that Paul's aiming at in the use of this metaphor. He's saying that God, our master, should be served honorably, not dishonorably. That's why he's using this distinction of these two different kinds of vessels, gold and silver versus wood and clay. That's the distinction between honorable vessels and dishonorable vessels. And all throughout 1st and 2nd Timothy, Paul is making this distinction between these two kinds of vessels, between these two kinds of teachers, of ministry leaders. So you have the Pauls and the Timothys of the world who are aiming to be honorable, and then you have Phygelus and Hermogenes who swayed from the truth and were spreading dishonor, spreading false gospels. And these teachers who swerved away from the truth, they were not used by the master for honor anymore. It was not fitting for the master to be served that way. He should be served in truth. But the challenge is that they didn't start that way, did they? These were people that Paul and Timothy would have known and loved. They were once seemingly vessels for honor. And yet, they now became dishonorable, little by little, swaying, turning away from the word of God. Paul's giving Timothy this word picture here and this reminder because that's a reminder to him, just like we should all be reminded that we can all be distracted away from the truth. And that's not just for pastors. That's also for the pew. That's all of us. That's why it's all of our responsibility to rightly divide the word of truth so that we are not led astray, so that we are not distracted, so that we don't go from honorable vessels to dishonorable vessels. Here in verse 21, Paul uses the same theme, honorable and dishonorable, but he changes that, that, that picture and starts talking about being clean and unclean. Look at verse 21 there. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 
Okay, so you have honorable, you have dishonorable, and now you have this picture of cleansing yourself from what's dishonorable so that you can be honorably used. That's a picture of cleansing. And this picture would have reminded Timothy, who his mother, remember, uh, was, Jewish back, was of Jewish background, of the ceremonial laws, of the ritual cleansings, or even what it might say in Deuteronomy chapter 24, that God's people are to purge themselves or cleanse themselves, remove themselves from what is evil so that they can be holy. Because since God is holy, God's people, his vessels, his workers, are to be holy like him. So again, same metaphor, clean and unclean, honorable and dishonorable, but Paul here is flipping it a little bit. He's basically saying, find China, for example, that you might have in your house, is good and fit to use as long as it's clean. If fine china is not clean, that too is not useful to the master. It's dishonorable. Many years ago after a hurricane, I, was, I went to a restaurant with some friends because we were hungry. There weren't many things that were open. We went to a restaurant that was very short-staffed, and you know how it is going to restaurants that are short-staffed. It takes a long time, and it becomes a bit of an adventure, right? But one thing that was really memorable was as the waiter finally came to us with the drinks that we had ordered, like maybe half an hour before then, it was like the cup was moving in slow motion because a friend of mine was like, is that lipstick? And it was a giant, bright, red lipstick stain on that mug that was going to be served, Needless to say, we didn't go back to that restaurant after that eventful night. But think about this. Paul is saying here that even these dishes that are supposed to be set apart for honorable use, they can get dirty. You don't serve that to people. You definitely don't serve that to the master of the house. So we should cleanse ourselves, therefore, from what is dishonorable. So then how do you cleanse yourself? What does it mean to cleanse yourself? We should know here that Paul is not talking about the cleansing of salvation. He's not talking about being saved. God does the work of salvation, and God even does the work of sanctification. But he's saying what we should remove ourselves from as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not our positioning, but our placement in the house. So you have dirty dishes. What do you do with them? You put them in the sink or you put them in the dishwasher, right? They're not ready to be used by anyone, even if it's fine china, right? The Lord is saying we need to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable so that we are useful to the master of the house. We are to be holy just as he is holy. And our holiness, brothers and sisters, is used by God for us to be useful to him for the lives of others. Paul tells Timothy that this pursuit of holiness, this pursuit of being useful to the master, involves fleeing and chasing. Fleeing from useful passions and chasing after or pursuing righteousness. It's both and. Look at verse 22 again. He says, flee useful passions, pursue righteousness. Faith, love, purity, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Useful passions, these desires, quarrels, these debates that Paul is referring to here, if they're nothing else, they are distractions. And distracted servants are no longer useful to the master of the house. That's what Paul is trying to say. So we're to flee from that. We're to flee from those useful passions that are distracting. So that we will run towards righteousness, holiness, and usefulness to the master of the house. Now, the flee youthful passions, that word passions might be translated in your Bible as lust, and that might make you think of sexual temptation. And the Bible does say we should flee from sexual temptation. Yes and amen. But what Paul has in mind here are some of those things that I just read in verses 23 and 24, things that young ministers like Paul might have been prone to, like a quarrelsome spirit, like wanting to argue, like wanting to debate, prideful quarreling was a distraction from the service of the master. And kids in the room, you might understand what this quarreling looks like, right? Well, just think about it. You're sitting in the back of that van, sitting bunched up with your brothers and sisters, and someone leans over, and they just start poking you for no reason. So you deal with it a little bit, They keep on poking. Eventually, you shout, Mom, he's poking me. And then your mom or your dad corrects them, leave your brother or sister alone. Then they say, all right. But then they lean over, and they don't touch you, but they basically do. Like they're as close to you as they possibly can without touching you. What are they trying to do? They're trying to agitate you. They're trying to irritate you. They're trying to get under your skin. There's lots of siblings like that in this room, perhaps, right? They're quarrelsome. They're picking a fight. They're wanting to get a reaction from you. That's what Paul is saying that these people are trying to do. Don't fall for it. Don't get distracted by it. Don't let them get under your skin. People do that today, don't they? They do that on social media. They try to poke at you. And get under your skin. Some of them might even be in the pastoral ministry. Paul's saying, that's childish. That's foolish. Don't allow that to distract you. So we take all that together. Dishonorable vessels are distracted, and that distraction leads to their deception. They're distracted by quarrels, and they're deceived by by ignorant and foolish controversies. Paul calls this a reverent babble in verse 16 of chapter 2. Nonsense. So it really doesn't matter what the topic is. It's nonsense because it contradicts God's word. Paul saying that God's people should turn away from that stuff, don't get distracted from that, flee from these useful passions, pursue after righteousness. Paul told Timothy this in the first chapter, chapter 6, or the first Timothy, first letter, chapter 6, verse 11, he said, You, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This is what you should pursue. That's what he says in verse 22, basically the same thing. And those words, love, faith, 
peace. That should remind us of the fruit of the Spirit. That we, we receive the Holy Spirit when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be walking in line with the Spirit, not with the flesh. We should be walking a long step what the Lord Jesus Christ is meaning to do in and through our lives. We should be going that way with the Spirit. Paul is saying all this basically to say to Timothy, I know you see what's going on. Don't go that way. Flee from that. Pursue righteousness. Go this way, along with the Spirit. Now, I'm a better driver, I think, than I used to be back in the day, but I used to be pretty terrible, like really bad with directions, like horrendously bad. One time when we lived in London, I got us so lost that we somehow ended up on the other side of the Thames River. And if you know anything about the Thames River, you know that that's like a three or four hour delay, right? Now, why does that happen? Because I'm driving, to be honest, and I'm going a certain way. I think I'm going the right way. And my pride, I don't want to hear that dreaded question from my wife. Do you know where you're going? Are you going the right way? In this case, I didn't know what way I was going. Paul saying here, useful lusts and passions, doesn't matter that everybody else is going that way. That's the wrong way. You are to turn and you're to go this way. Pursue righteousness. That is the right way. But notice that Paul is to do this, or Timothy is to do this, with his brothers and sisters in Christ who are having the same pursuit. It's a group project. It's to be pursued, Paul says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. If Timothy is going to pursue righteous living, he was going to do that successfully with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the same is true of us. But why make this pursuit? Because in verses 25 and 26, Paul says that God may perhaps grant them repentance and knowledge of the truth so they may turn from their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Who's he talking about? Those who were following the right way, who got distracted, who became deceived, the, the homogenies and phileuses of the world, those people, if you pursue after righteousness, you may be used by God as a clean vessel for their repentance. It actually has a purpose. Now, when we get to passages like that, it's easy for us to be caught up on, well, how do we know if this person who's strayed away from the truth, if they actually are true Christians, if they actually will turn to the Lord one day? Paul doesn't want Timothy to get caught up in that. He says, you go the right way. You pursue righteousness. You respond gently to them. God may use you for their repentance. And remember, as it says in verse 19, the Lord knows who are his. Your task is to pursue righteousness and holy living. And that's our task as well. Paul shards to Timothy was for the sake of the truth, to be useful to the master, pursue righteous living in your life for the sake of others, for the sake of the spread of the gospel. But as we know, there's only one that actually did that completely and entirely with their entire lives. So that leads us to point two, focusing on the righteousness of Christ. We'll camp here for a sec. 
to focus on the fact that Paul was telling Timothy to do something that his Lord had already done. Paul was telling Timothy to do what he was empowered to do by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's also what we've been empowered to do, to live righteously, to follow Christ in his example. Because Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one whom the angels saying, holy, 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 came humbly to serve in this world. As a humble vessel, he was completely holy, completely set apart, completely obedient, always useful to the master, always ready for every single good work. His mission was marked by truth, and it was marked by love. Jesus, being the way, the truth, and the life, came here in humility to serve us, to live in obscurity. And he did exactly what the Father wanted him to do. He said exactly what the Father Father wanted him to say. He always pursued righteousness. That was evident in his words. That was evident in his ways. He patiently endured evil from people that he created. He endured insults from people that he spoke into being. He patiently taught people about his coming, about the coming kingdom, and also warned them of the coming judgment and that he was the only way to escape that judgment. And as he did, he lived in perfect, complete righteousness to the Father. And remember that Jesus, as he lived in his ministry in this, here on earth, he was not quarrelsome. Jesus was kind. He ate with tax collectors and sinners that, the felt, that self-righteous Pharisees wanted nothing to do with. He came, he said, for the weak for the weary, for the sick, for the poor, for the lame. He came for those who knew that they needed a Savior and knew that they could not save themselves. But Jesus came gently. In fact, he describes himself as gentle. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And though Jesus had many foes around him, he was not distracted by them. He was focused on his mission. He came to seek and save the lost, and that's exactly what he did, and he did it perfectly. He didn't get distracted by the Pharisees. He didn't get tripped up on their questioning. He corrected them with truth and even with gentleness. Let's think of Nicodemus, for example, and that long conversation he had with him in John chapter 3. Jesus was patient even with those who were supposed to be his enemies. He corrected them with gentleness, but Jesus was no pushover. Jesus did not let sin go unpunished. Jesus was not afraid to oppose the religious leaders who were teaching God's word incorrectly. He confronted them. He called them out in their sin. He rebuked the self-righteous Pharisees. He rebuked Peter. And even when he was arrested, he gave himself up. He didn't run and hide. And when he was confronted by Pontius Pilate, he said, you have no authority over me. The authority you have was given to you by my Father. Why did he do all that? Verse 25 and 26 again. So that God may perhaps grant repentance to us. Though we, God's enemies, were ensnared by the devil. Jesus 
was crucified on the cross. He was buried, and then he rose from the grave so that all of us could put our faith in him, could not only be saved, but also be useful for the master and useful for his work, that we can be free from the snare of the devil and free to serve and love God like we were created to. And that freedom is available today if you're not a Christian. You can put your faith in him today. Receive his righteousness, receive his forgiveness, receive his holiness, receive his mercy, but also receive your marching orders so that you can live in righteousness like he's called and made you to live. That freedom is available for you today if you have not put your faith in Christ. We strongly urge you, if that's you, to consider that today. Brothers and sisters, remember that this is what God does. He takes his enemies and makes them his friends. He takes his enemies and makes them his workers. That was Paul's story. He was a Pharisee. He persecuted the church. And now he's sitting in jail, being persecuted himself, awaiting death for the sake of the same gospel that he opposed. That's your story, too. That's your story. That you, though you once opposed the Lord Jesus Christ, he's graciously saved you, but then gave you an assignment. He gave you work to do. Pursue righteousness so that you can be a useful vessel in his hands. Just think of Matthew 9, 36, when, when Jesus looks at the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know what he did in the next chapter? He sent out his workers into that harvest. Who by his grace harvested more, who then did the same thing, and the same thing, and the same thing. And that's exactly why you're sitting here as a Christian. Because the Lord has used his former enemies and turned them into his faithful workers, useful for him. Oh, may we look around us and see a harvest. May we look in our neighborhoods, in our community, around our job, around our school, at UMD, and see a harvest that is ripe. May we pray that the Lord would not just use them, but use us as workers to go into that harvest for his glory as faithful workers. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' entire life was a pursuit of righteousness. He died and was raised to fulfill all righteousness. And he's freed us from sin, from the snare of the devil, so that we could pursue righteousness. So we can be vessels that were honorable for the master. Which brings us lastly to point three. Our pursuit of righteous living. So we saw this charge that Paul gave to Timothy, pursue righteousness. We see this fulfilled in the righteous life of Christ. Lastly, our pursuit of righteousness. What should this look like for us? Brothers and sisters, in the season that we're in, as a church, it's very easy for us to get distracted, disappointed, and to even be deceived. To look elsewhere instead of looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. To look to a building. To look to a pastor. 
to look around at these other churches and compare and be discouraged about what God is doing here. But the Lord wants us to not be discouraged, not be deceived, not be distracted. He wants us to be diligent because he wants to use us for his purposes. Fix our eyes on him and to pursue righteousness. But we need to remember we're going to pursue righteous living. Just what Paul is telling Timothy here, it's the same reminder that we should have. And this is the main point of application. We need to remember that the enemy wants to distract you, but the master wants to use you. The enemy wants to distract you, but the master wants to use you. So a quote from C.S. Lewis in the Spruce Tape Letters captures this beautifully. It says, it does not matter how small the sins are, provided that, they, that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And distractions, beloved, can cause us little by little by little to drift from honor to dishonor, away from the master. And we can all be distracted, can't we? This thing about your weekly screen time reports that pops up on your phones, normally on Sundays, right? It's like, your screen time has been up by 22%. It's like, really? And if you're, you're like me, you try to, try to justify that. You're like, well, I did go a long way to get here, so I use my GPS a lot. Or I listened to a lot of music this week or last week. What does this phone know? I wasn't distracted. But then quickly, right after that, is that question of, is that true? Were you not distracted? Were you not deceived? Did you not give your time over to useful passions, foolish arguments or controversies? But on our phone, we can set up these boundaries, right? We can set up these time limits. We can say, I'm only going to be on this social media site for an hour a day, right? We can say, I'm going to filter my phone so that I don't have any access to go to any of these websites. I don't have access to go to anything that's distracting, right? We have the ability to do that. Brothers and sisters, remember that the Lord intends for your brothers and sisters to be those boundary markers for you and for me. To inquire of our lives, to ask us tough questions, to say, how has your holiness been? How have you been spending your time? Are you pursuing righteousness right now? How's your marriage going? How's your time with the Lord? How's your relationship with your children? Members of CBC, that's why we have church membership. And that's why in cases of flagrant unrepentance, like, I don't want to hear it. I just don't care. I'm going to do my own thing. Extreme measures, that's why we have church discipline. It is our responsibility to look after one another so that we are living honorable lives so that we can be useful to the master. It's what he deserves from us. 
That's why we're called to correct one another when we're straying from the truth and point each other to the gospel over and over and over again to flee youthful passions, to chase after righteousness. And if you don't have someone that can help put those boundaries up for you, my encouragement to you, brother or sister, is to find them today before you leave. Guarantee there are people who would love to help you to pursue righteousness. So God's people might be distracted by sin, but we could also be distracted by quarreling or ignorant controversies that lead to quarreling. So how might you be feeding into quarreling? So either being quarrelsome yourself, like one that likes to poke and get under people's skin and see what kind of reaction that you're going to get from them, or by those that just look and kind of like other people getting poked, other people getting agitated, other people getting irritated. And doesn't social media just feed that, that urge in us to love people that quarrel? To desire that? Like, we might say, I don't want to do that. I would never put that comment. I would never accuse that brother or sister of that. But we'll read it. And somewhere in us, we might even like it. It's like the car accident that you tell yourself, I'm not going to watch it because everybody else is slowing down watching it, and I just want to get to where I need to go. And what do you do as you drive towards the car accident? You slow down and you look. So many of us can easily do that and feed into that, feed into quarrels, feed into speculation. And then on our phones, the algorithm gods just keep feeding us more and more so that we can get what we want. Paul tells Timothy that he does need to correct his opponents, that if people are straying away from the truth, he does need to come alongside. But those opponents should not be distracting to him. Their words, their ways should not be a distraction for him. And he should not become like them. I wonder how many of us are tempted to justify not being Christ-like because the world that we live in or the environment that we live in or the school that we go to or the job environment that we have or the neighborhood that we live in is hostile. So we're like, we need to fight fire with fire. We can't be gentle, we'll be trampled over. Or maybe you have family members or loved ones who love to quarrel, who are caught up in endless controversies. They love conspiracies. They love those questions that they know will get under your skin. And you're like, I can't be gentle with them. They don't respond to that. And maybe you're tempted to fight fire with fire. But the Lord wants us to quench fires, beloved. That's why God's word says in Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So we should be motivated to speak the truth in love and to completely rely on God's word as we do. Let's remember that we have an enemy, and God wants to use us, our master wants to use us, but let's also remember that if we have an enemy, that brother or sister you're sitting next to also has an enemy. They also might be tempted. They also might be deceived. They also might be distracted, maybe even right now. So what do we do about that? We should pray 
and we should pursue. Pray to the Lord and ask him to give us wisdom. Ask him to give us clarity. Ask us to give us eyes to see them as he sees. Ask, us, ask him to give us the compassion to be willing to pursue them, even though those conversations are hard to have. And then pursue them in gentleness, in kindness, in love, with the authority of God's word. We don't have to be the hammer, and we are not the Holy Spirit. He does a good job of convicting of sin. We just need to present God's word as it is and pray that the Lord would use it in the lives of our brothers and sisters. But what about those who aren't here anymore? And I don't mean CBC. I mean that they aren't pursuing righteousness alongside you anymore because they are so distant, because they are so distracted, because they are so deceived. They're so caught up in these endless and foolish controversies that they are no longer following Christ the way they once did. Can you picture them? I have one person in mind right now. I've been thinking about them all week. They were once honorable vessels for the Lord, but right now you don't even know if they're really Christians. Maybe they're just terribly distracted. Maybe they're deceived. Maybe they're in the process of deconstructing. Or maybe they've just outright denounced the faith altogether. Remember that though they may be ensnared right now, God can grant repentance. That should humble us because we should be reminded of the fact that without God's mercy and grace, we would still be ensnared to our sin. And that should also give us hope to approach them gently, to listen carefully, to respond with truth and in love, and to focus on God's word as we do respond, to pray for them, and even to pursue them as we have opportunity. Beloved, if that's you and there's loved ones that fit into that category, my encouragement is to not pursue them alone. Pray, ask for the Lord's help, but ask for your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you as well. So much more that could be said. But brothers and sisters, may we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ so we can be useful vessels in the master's good and gracious hands. He's honorable. He's worthy of it. So may we pursue righteousness for the sake of his truth. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need your help to pursue righteousness. But we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us on our own to know what that looks like. You've given us your son. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Help us pursue righteousness so that we are useful in your hands, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.